I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are finally back in 1 Timothy. Uh, We come back after a six-week hiatus intended to help us understand the context of Paul's statement within the first chapter of this epistle, particularly that which we are going to talk about today. Uh, We are going to talk about the law, the function of the law, the purpose of the law, and I wanted to give us some underlying context for that before just jumping into uh, Paul's uh, somewhat uh, quick um, uh, statements. Uh, He just kind of passes by them to some degree here in 1 Timothy as he's writing to a a colleague and a friend and a fellow pastor as he has written and established these things uh, essentially in Galatians. We'll talk about that a little bit more as, as we continue. And so he brushes by it quite quickly and I felt it would do a disservice to the text if we did not focus in on it. So we spent the last six weeks doing so, and now we're back in First Timothy. Before we get into verse 8 through 11, I'd like us to do a brief review of the first seven verses of the epistle, uh, which I preached some two months ago. Now, it, it, uh, it doesn't help in, a, in an expositional series when, when uh, I spend that much time right at the beginning of the book getting off context. But, uh, but let's do a quick review uh, of these things. Paul introduced this epistle in a fairly common fashion, and then very quickly turns his attention here in 1 Timothy to the importance of ministers teaching and preaching sound doctrine. Indeed, sound doctrine is an important theme within the book of 1 Timothy. Paul recounts how he left Timothy at Ephesus while he journeyed on to Macedonia and specifically reminds Timothy of the charge that he gave him regarding his continued ministry there and the duty that Timothy was charged with as he continued his ministry in Ephesus was that they would teach no other doctrine that they would not teach anything but sound doctrine we then get a little bit of insight into the kinds of false doctrines that were floating around in Ephesus, the kinds of things that Paul in particular was concerned about as it related to that church. He speaks of not giving heed to fables. The idea they're literally uh, being myths or stories which have no basis in the truth. Then he speaks of endless genealogies. The idea of resting our focus upon bloodlines and of people groups rather than on the doctrines of Christ. He says that these are examples of things which engender questions <clears throat> excuse me, and controversies rather than rather than godly edifying in faith, which is where our focus ought to lie. And we talked at the time about how much churches and individuals can really get drawn into these things, into fables and genealogies, into those things which gender controversies and questions rather than truths. And one of the primary reasons why is because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Because if there's things that, that aren't in the book but we're pursuing those rabbit holes, then it's really easy to pursue them because we can't just open the book and say, see, we're right, see, we're wrong. So it allows me to stand upon some measure of self-righteousness. It it allows me to feel some measure of confidence in, in the flesh because, well, they're just theories anyway. So we have these fables, these... Um, Endless genealogies, these things of which we are warned about. He then speaks of those who have turned aside to these vanities and focuses in particularly on those that were teaching a specific element of unsound doctrine of which he's going to speak more of as as the, the chapter continues. He describes these as people who are desiring to be teachers of the law, but understand neither what they say or whereof they affirm. These initiates are those who had a desire to teach the law, but they didn't understand what the law was about. They had a desire to teach these truths, but they were not teaching them in sound doctrine. And this begins Paul's focus upon the law and its use here in 1 Timothy. The reason why we diverted our attention, as I mentioned, from the epistle for those weeks is because I felt it would do a disservice 
to the full understanding of a Christian's relationship to the law to simply say the law is a tool of conviction. Indeed, it is. But as we studied over the last six weeks in our mini-series, uh, we saw that the law does have value to the believer. It's good, though by nature insufficient, as a reflection of the righteousness of God. It cannot save. It has no power unto eternal life. It has no power to grant us fellowship with God. In fact, as we have looked over the past six weeks, the law... Uh, exists to to break that fellowship. The law exists to show us uh, our, our need for something bigger, for something more, but it still does have value. These templates, these examples, uh, are not the true and natural use of the law, however. The idea that we draw from the law the righteousness of, Christ, uh, of God, we draw from the law the character of God, that is not the truest and most pure function of the law. Lest we fool ourselves into thinking that the law or the lawful use of the laws, we'll see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, frees us to live in whatever manner we please. We spent a good amount of time within this mini-series as well focusing upon the reality that we cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. That our freedom from the letter of the law, as Paul teaches it, does not give us license to live any way we would please, but rather binds us to, to enduring principles. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And as we considered that two weeks ago in the last message I preached, it's quite a high standard, isn't, is it not? And if we're busy, if we're keeping ourselves busy doing that, we will indeed keep ourselves busy for a lifetime. But now we come back to it. What was the law actually designed by God to do? What was that period between the Sinai and the cross Designed to do? What was the Mosaic covenant, that Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that would flow from it? What was it there for? Where is the law's true and valid application in this world? Paul's going to tell us today, and remember our context in this. He's telling us these things within the context of warning Timothy about men who teach other doctrines contrary to sound doctrine. He's warning about men who desire to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand the nature of the law, and they don't understand what they're, the way they're teaching the law, what that affirms, what it's actually teaching. If you dig down to the implications of what they're teaching, what those implications are within the church. So let's read verse 8. Uh, uh, but first, I'd like us to... to Go in our context. So if you've got your Bibles there, we'll begin reading in verse 5, and then we'll read through to verse 8. The Bible says this, Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. But we know, verse 8, that the law is good... If a man use it lawfully. Now, the contrast Paul makes here in verse 8 shows us the problem with these people that desired to be teachers of the law, but were using it unlawfully. Uh, they were extending the law beyond its design, they were extending the law beyond its capacity or its capabilities. My van is very good for what it is, it has enough seatbelts to fit my entire family, uh, at least for now. It, it has cargo room to take stuff with us. It's got a roof rack. It's got a trunk. It's got the, the, the capacity to be able to move my family and the, the contraband of my family, which can be quite considerable, from point A to point B. But the van, for all of its uses, for all of its good when used properly, is not very good when used for things for which it is not designed. The van has a very particular use case in mind. And if I wanted to take that van and do things that were outside of its use case, I would find it to become insufficient very quickly. It would not be a very sufficient off-roading vehicle. It would not be a very sufficient drag racing vehicle. It is not very sufficient as vehicles meant for other purposes. It is not even as efficient as it could be simply as a commuter vehicle because of gas mileage and such. It has a use case, and within that use case, it's very good. Outside of that use case, it proves itself to be wholly insufficient. Just so, the law is very good in its proper place. 
But taken outside of its design, taken outside of its context, taken outside of its proper use case, it becomes insufficient. And indeed, in doctrine and theology, to take a truth and to strip it of its intended design cannot just become inefficient or insufficient, but it can become dangerous, can't it? The affirmations that can come about when I take truth and I strip it of its intended purpose and I apply it where it does not belong can mean the difference, quite literally, between truth and error. The greatest dangers to God's people, to those who are truly born-again believers, is often not blatant, unapologetic lies, is it? You're not going to read books with blatant, unbiblical, unapologetic lies and say, wow, this guy's really got a point. The deeper danger to the church of Christ is that mixing of truth and error, is that slight tweak to the truth, where truth just, you come at truth, but you you add this little different flavor, this error into the truth, that idea that Paul says in Corinthians, a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump, right? It doesn't take a lot of error to, to taint all of truth. I've given this example before, but if I'm uh, building something and I'm measuring and I need a 45 degree angle, well, if I've only got a very small piece of wood and I need a 45 degree angle, if I'm off by a degree or two, it's not going to make that big of a di- difference. But if I've got a, a whole project that I'm doing, if I've got big, a big project, a lot of wood, metal, steel, all of these things going on, and I'm off by a degree at the beginning... What, what begins and still off by a degree, but, but what is a very small difference when you're, when you're in the short term becomes a very large difference the farther out you extend it. This is the idea of them not knowing what they affirm. On the short term, some of those elements of what they were teaching about the law may have been, been, been just a different perspective or, or, or slightly errant but not a big deal. But as you extend it, as you extend it into the second generation of people teaching that, the third generation of teaching that, as you extend this doctrine into that doctrine and this doctrine and you try to reconcile it all together, a little leaven can truly leaven the whole lump. And this is the idea here. Satan, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible warns us, is transformed into an angel of light, right? He seeks to misrepresent, to distract, to cause to lose focus, and so to fall short of truth. Now, much of what Paul says here, we have already considered sufficiently. For those of you that have not been uh, here for my series, I apologize. You're coming in right at the end of that. It's all online, though. It's on YouTube. It's on, uh, it's on podcasts. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those uh, for the foundation of what we're talking about, but we will review a little of it today. The reality, as we have understood it from the scriptures, is that the law truly is good. Recall our discussion in Romans 7, where Paul admits the very fact. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is holy. It is holy and just and good, but any virtue can become a vice. When we spoke several weeks ago about the law's reflection of the character of God, this is the end unto which we considered, that the law as it exists is good, but if I use it in an imbalanced way, if I place upon the law intents and purposes for which it was not designed, if I, if I can put it this way, put a burden upon the law of which it cannot bear, then it collapses, I fall out of balance, and I can drift into any number of spiritual dangers." Be that self-righteousness, be that judgmentalism, be that ungraciousness, be that division among the brethren. Thus, the law can become a stumbling stone in the same way that it was to the Jews of the reality of grace. Paul said in Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, that in many ways the law itself was the, the catalyst by which the Jews stumbled at the stumbling stone of Christ. And in that message several weeks ago, we admitted the law's value to the believer as a shadow of things to come, but we must understand that this is not the law's primary purpose. The value to the believer is not why the law exists. And it is not why it, it's not why it existed then, it's not why it exists today. We saw early in our miniseries that the law is a tool unto condemnation. It exists to condemn for the unrighteous not for the righteous. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, 
but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. Oops, excuse me. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So Paul sets the record straight here. He says the law is not made for a righteous man, but it is made for a lawless man, for a disobedient man, for the ungodly and for sinners. Now, at the first we say, okay, well, pastor, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, quoting from Psalm 14, verse 3 and Psalm 53, verse 3, that there is none righteous. No, not one, right? There is none righteous. And so seeing that there is none righteous, no, not one, seeing that all have gone out of the way, seeing that all have become unprofitable, that that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. To this end, the law exists for everyone, right? As there is none righteous. Well, yes. In our unrighteous state. As we know, when we pronounce the gospel joyfully, that's the whole reason why Christ came. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus died on the cross, the just for the unjust, right? Jesus died on the cross because there's no way in and of myself I can be sufficient to enter into the presence of the Lord, to be brought into fellowship with God, to be reconciled unto Him because I am a sinner and my sin must be dealt with. A holy God cannot abide fellowship with a sinful man. It is not that I must just acknowledge my sin. I must be cleansed of my sin if I am going to be able to have fellowship with God. I must be cleansed of my sin. I must become righteous. There is no one who will enter into heaven one day who is not righteous. But I can't do that myself. I can't become righteous. I'm already guilty. I've already sinned. And that's why Jesus had to come, right? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. In dying on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the world, freely gives the gift of eternal life to all that will accept that gift by grace through faith. And all of those who do accept that gift are what's called justified, declared righteous. It's not that we are made innocent. We're not innocent. It's that we are declared not guilty. It's not that we are made innocent. It's that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are declared judicially not guilty, declared righteous. I gave you that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here it is. We read it. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became sin for us that we might become righteous in him, declared righteous. In Christ, the believer is made righteous. And this is important. So when the Bible says that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for the unrighteous, we understand that initially, from an initial perspective, that means every single person, the law has that, that value. It's made for them. But there is a point, according to the Word of God, where a man can be made righteous. At that point, things change. Righteousness is imputed upon all those who come to God by the faith of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 1. Go back in time in Corinthians a little bit. Verses 30 to 31. Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness. There it is. And sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now all we who rest in eternal security must by it freely admit that we are found in Christ to be righteous before God. So when Paul recites this list of those for whom the law exists, though to some degree these lawless deeds will continue to exist in our lives, right? The, the, the deeds of the flesh will continue to exist in the lives of, of the believer. Though we might continue to have sin in our lives, and we will indeed until the day that Christ takes us home, we must understand that those sins, though they exist, do not define our lives. They are not who we are. They are not how God sees us. Sin might exist in us, but it is not our nature any longer. 
we are given a new nature. And that new nature is Christ's nature. So Paul makes a list of lawless and ungodly deeds. He speaks of profanity, speaking of those things which are irreverent to the holiness of God. He speaks here of murder. And he says specifically, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. And then he talks about manslayers. Of course, manslaying is the taking of human life. It is uh, on a slightly different degree than murder uh, as it would relate to a legal standard. But we might understand murder there not just to be the taking of human life, but in Jesus' context where Jesus says, if you hate a brother in your heart, you have, you have murdered him already. And James speaks of that same thing in James chapter 4, where he talks about them hating and killing one another within the church context, not that they were running around in church with knives, stabbing one another, but rather that they were hating each other in their heart, committing murder in their heart one toward another. And that may be the idea here as it speaks of those who are murderers of mothers and murderers of fathers. We see on other lists of 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 sins, disobedience to parents, right? And there may very well be an element of that idea here as Paul expresses it. So he speaks of murder, murdering of fathers and murdering of mothers. He speaks of manslayers. He mentions whoremongers, those who are dedicated to various sexual impurities, defilers of themselves with mankind. We would typically understand that to be sexual perversions, such as sodomy. Men-stealers, kidnappers, liars, those that misrepresent the truth, perjured persons, those who falsely swear. And then Paul throws out an umbrella here. And he says at the end of verse 10, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the gospel, right? The, the, the law was made for those whose lives are defined by those things which are contrary to sound doctrine. The law was made not for those whose nature is in Christ, but for those whose nature is in the world. So then the law exists for those who walk in opposition to the gospel. And this contrast between those who are in Christ and those who are under the condemnation of the law is very strong throughout the New Testament. We find here this list of sins which exists contrary to sound doctrine, which undergirds the use of the law. The law exists to show unbelievers their deep sinfulness. The law exists to bring those who rest under that condemnation of the law in which they realize that they are sinners into an understanding of that condemnation so that then they would be compelled to flee unto grace. This was the very process by which Paul described or excuse me, which of which Paul described in Romans 7. So Romans 7 said that the law is good, right? It is just, it's holy, it's good. He continues in verses 9 and 10, and he says, For I, speaking of himself, was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. So Paul describes a time when he says he was alive without the law, when he was under the erroneous belief that he was right with God because he was ignorant of the righteousness which God demanded. We know that Paul grew up as a Pharisee, right? We knew that as pertaining unto the law, he was blameless. And so he was a very morally good man. And so there was a time when living in that moral system, he says, I, I felt as though I was right. I had no conception of my sin. I was alive without the law. He says, but then the law came. He realized what the law said. The commandment came, sin revived, and he died. He describes the commandment coming, being made aware of the commandment, and then he says he died. Now, what we know is that he didn't fall over dead, right? Because he's writing this. So that's not what this means. It does not mean he fell over dead. What it means is that he felt, he became in his conscience, his conscience was enlivened to the reality of the separation between himself and God. And all throughout the New Testament, when you see that word death, you need to ask the question, are we talking about physical death or are we talking about a spiritual separation from God? Because a good number of times we're talking about a spiritual separation from God. So when Paul realized the standard under the law, he became keenly aware of his own unrighteousness, of the places where he fell short, and he felt a deep and abiding separation from God due to the reality of his sinfulness. So that all the law, which reflects that which is good and holy, though it does reflect that which is good, became unto him death, which is not good. Right? He saw the law and the law killed him even though the law in and of it by its nature is good. 
the law, which reflects that which is good and holy, becomes death to all who seek to live it because they can't. And so we are revealed to be by our very nature lawless and disobedient. Not only that we do lawless and disobedient things, but that the nature of the unbeliever is defined by lawlessness and disobedience. And this is an important point. We are talking about a contrast here between those who are, whose lives, whose spirits, who, who are defined by lawlessness, who live in death, and those whose very nature is defined by Christ, who live in and walk in newness of life. So as an unbeliever, our nature, our existence operated in fundamental contradiction to the holiness of God until, as we considered some weeks ago, we were buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life, placed into Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness, given a new name, no longer defined by sin, but defined by Christ. We see this idea given in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, what do you mean it was painting a contrast? Stick with me here. Here we see a very similar list in 1 Corinthians 6 that we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1, right? A list of offenses. In this particular case, though, Paul makes it very clear that they which do such things, that they who are defined by such things, the unrighteous shall not, indeed cannot, inherit the kingdom of heaven, cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This list, among others in the New Testament, has caused no end of confusion and grief among many persons who has come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace and then find some sin upon this list or another list like it that says those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, realizes that they still struggle with those sins and so they're deeply troubled in their hearts about their eternal security. But what's important for us to understand is that this statement is given in context. Never, never ignore context. We can't just pull two verses out of 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Corinthians as a whole and say, these verses say this without understanding the context within which they're given, the broader argument that Paul is making here. And in context, we find that Paul gives this list in contrast. And it's not a contrast of actions. It's a contrast of conditions. He is describing here the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, look at this with me, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know what really strikes me as exciting about these verses in this context? Is Paul is writing to a church that is having a lot of problems with sin in 1 Corinthians, isn't he? I mean, 1 Corinthians is a book of discipline. It is a book of rebuke. It is a book where Paul tells them that within the church they were doing things that even the unbelievers around them saw as unpalatable. And within this context, Paul warns them that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but then he looks at them and he says, but you, you're washed. But you, you're sanctified. But you, you're justified. See, we're not looking at a contrast of actions here, though it will bring about a contrast of actions, right? Don't get me wrong. It will. That's why, that's, that's why 1 Corinthians is a book of rebuke, right? Because Paul says, your actions are not lining up with what you claim to be your nature. But we are looking at a contrast of natures here. A contrast. The contrast is not about whether or not the people in question are doing any of those things, but whether or not they are defined by those things. The moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are no longer defined by your sin. You are defined by the righteousness in Christ. You are made the righteousness of God in Christ. There is a difference between a football player and a person who plays football, right? I can go out and I can play football. That does not make me a football player. I am a pastor who went out and played football. 
that is very different from someone who has devoted himself to perfection in his sport, who defines his time, his effort, his life, the very essence of who he is by the fact that he plays football. He will be, he'll have a Wikipedia page and it says he, was a, or a, he is a or was a former football player. It defines who he is. It does not define who I am. In like manner, at least from a doctrinal perspective, there is a definitive difference between a person who commits a sin and a person who is defined by their sin. A person who commits a sin contrary to the nature that he has in Christ, which is still sin, which needs repentance, which is not right, which, which, which is not normal. But a big contrast between that person and the person who is unrighteous, who, is, who the very essence of his character is defined by sin, by the world, because he is not in Christ. The believer still commits sins. You will until the day you die. But... You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of your God. To this end, though I might do something on that or any other sin list in the Bible, that's not me. I am living in contradiction to my nature. It's not me. I'm not defined by my sin because I've been buried and risen with Christ. That's what 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Romans chapter 6 tells us so explicitly. I am in Christ. I am given a new name and a new nature. Romans 6, the whole point of Paul, what Paul's saying there in Romans 6 is, look, if you have been raised to walk in newness of life, reckon it to be so and live it. He's saying you're living, every time you sin, you are living in dramatic contradiction to the very nature into which you have been born. You are living in contradiction to yourself and you can't live that way happily, right? You can't live that way contentedly. That's why we say the most miserable person in the world is actually not the unbeliever typically. It's the believer that's living in sin because you are living in dramatic... The unbeliever is living in complete consistency to his nature when he's sinning. Complete consistency to his nature. The only thing that's going to make him uncomfortable is the degree to which the law, the word of God, has entered into his, uh, into his mind and thus he sees the unrighteousness within his actions. But the believer who's living in sin is living in direct contradiction to himself. Direct contradiction to the very essence of his nature in Christ. It's a miserable, miserable place to be. So I, as a believer, buried and risen with Christ, in Christ, given a new name, given a new nature, born again, adopted into the family of God, I might lie but I'm lying in contradiction to the nature of the Spirit of Christ which was in me. I'm not a liar from a, from a doctrinal standpoint. I'm defined by Christ, not by my lies. I might steal, but spiritually speaking, doctrinally speaking, I am defined by Christ, not by theft. And again, this distinction does not exist to free us from sin. I, I hope I've made that clear. To live and to think that this distinction frees us to sin, I mean, does not free us to sin. To think that this distinction frees us to sin is entirely foreign to Scripture. And in fact, is blasphemous to the God who delivered us from the power of wickedness. And we've studied that and mentioned that any number of times over the past weeks. So when we read these verses, we see this contrast clearly. To this end, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the law lawfully exists for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. And if you are in Christ, that is not, he's not talking about you there. He's not. We must understand that. It's not keyed into our, explicitly to our actions, but rather to our condition whether or not we are under the blood of Christ. And all who live under the blood of Jesus Christ are righteous by nature because we are under that blood which has cleansed us from our sin. All who live outside of this grace are unrighteous by nature, regardless of how moral they live. They are unrighteous by nature because they have not been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there is none righteous, no, not one, in his natural condition. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how good you try to be. It doesn't matter how much you toe the line, how often you go to church, how much you give to charity, how many little old ladies you help across the street. If you're not in Christ, you are unrighteous. If you are in Christ, that is your and our only hope for any righteousness. 
I want us to look at one more of these list passages of sins. And it's going to uh, bring us back into Galatians where we're going to spend uh, a portion of the rest of our time. Galatians chapter 5 verses 19 through 21 says this. Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So here we have another one of these lists of the works of the flesh. And I feel like I've established this now. But notice here how it's written. Paul gives this list as a means of contrasting the things which are rooted in the flesh with, as he would continue in his teaching, the things which are manifest that come naturally out of those who are walking in the Spirit. He calls for God's people to walk in the Spirit and in doing so not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he gives this list. uh, This list focuses significantly more on sexual sins uh, than it does, and and then anger. uh, The different manifestations of anger and different manifestations Manifestations of sexual sins as opposed to others in this particular list. And he mentions quite plainly again that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But I do want to make mention of this just for a moment. That the word here that we find in the Greek, do, is not the typical word for doing something, for performing an action, just for making something happen. That would be that word for those of you that are here on Tuesday nights, poeo. This is a different word. This is proso. And this is the idea of doing something habitually, making it a practice, or effectively becoming defined by that thing. Once again, we see this idea come out that it is those whose lives are defined by sin rather than the righteousness of Christ, those who are unrighteous, that shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we find this consistency that the law and its many offenses exist to highlight the reality of unrighteousness and to bring the unrighteousness into a place of unmistakable condemnation, paving the way for them to flee to the only thing that can save them, which is the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, for many weeks, we have gone all over the book of Galatians, which forms the best and most cumulative teaching on these concepts. But I have generally avoided the principles found in Galatians chapter 3 because they tie in so clearly to 1 Timothy chapter 1 that I wanted to bring them up when we finally got back into our Timothy context. And that is today. What we have learned today through general principles is that the divinely designed purpose of the law since its inception is to enliven a man's conscience, to reveal to him just how far short he falls from the righteousness of God so that he would be compelled to flee to God for the mercy and grace through Christ that Christ purchased on the cross in order to enter into that personal relationship in which otherwise we never could be worthy of and without we are unable to inherit the kingdom of God. And what Paul mentions there in 1 Timothy in passing comes together with a great deal of clarity in Galatians chapter 3. So what I'm going to do is in very quick survey form, I'm going to walk through Galatians 3. And I'm going to show you a little bit of what it's saying. Of course, we're not going to go verse by verse uh, uh, expositing it today. But uh, I want to show you what it's saying and, and give you the broader context of what Paul is kind of brushing by in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we read in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We're we're still, as I mentioned, jumping into context, but Paul establishes his premise here plainly. No man is justified in the sight of God by the law. Paul says this is evident because the just shall live by faith. He states this in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He states it in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It's also stated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Much to the contrary, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. He took the curse of the law upon himself when Christ made him to be sin for us 
that the spiritual blessing of the promise of Abraham, that would be the promises by faith of righteousness, that, in, that through his seed all the world will be blessed, would be ours to receive by faith. So Paul continues then in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant, which was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So what Paul is saying here is, he, he says, I speak after the manner of men. The idea, whenever you see Paul say, I speak after the manner of men, what he means is that for a moment, he is going to step outside of, uh, of the role of spiritual teacher and he is going to assume a carnal mindset. He is going to assume the mindset that someone that's not thinking on a spiritual plane or not thinking in a right doctrinal position would think. Now, he's going to assume a secular mindset mindset in order to prove a point. And the point he seeks to prove is that even in the secular world, when two people make a covenant, if it's confirmed legally, then it's binding. It cannot be disannulled. It can't be added to. You can't just sign a contract and then later say, well, you know, this is the contract we signed, but I, but, but I added a few pages to it after the signature. Um, these things you're, you're accountable for as well under the signature that you signed way back then. It doesn't work that way. And if this is the case even of a human government, covenant, and this is why Paul says, I speak after the manner of a man. Even in the ma after the manner of a man under a human covenant, you can't disannul a contract that's been legally bound. He says, if that's the way it is with human co covenants under fallible people, how much more sure are the covenants of God? To this end, it must be understood that nothing that was promised to Abraham by God in Genesis 15 could be undone by the promises he made to Israel 430 years later. And the promises of God to Abraham and his seed were unconditional and were by faith alone. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our Sunday evening service, how uh, Abraham cut the animals in half and put them on either side of the hill, right? And the blood ran into the, the trough in between. And then God made Abraham fall asleep and God himself passed through that blood without Abraham passing through, indicating that the covenant was a one-way unconditional covenant between God and Abraham and his seed by faith. So that it could not be disannulled, nor did Abraham and that seed have any conditions that they had to keep in order to align with it. Wholly independent of action or circumstance. And the law could not undo that. So all of the actions and the expectations of the law could not undo the promise that was made to Abraham. And in this we see God's plan. What is the law good for then? If Abraham was saved by faith, and as we talked about a couple weeks ago, David was saved by faith, and we are saved by faith, and the law never had anything to do with salvation by grace through faith, and the law could never bring a man into fellowship with God, then what was the law there for? Why? What, what was the point of that time between Sinai and the cross? Well, Paul continues, and he answers this question in verses 19 and 20. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promises, the promise, excuse me, was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. It existed as a stopgap measure to curb man's natural sinfulness while History was waiting for the seed, the promised seed of Abraham that was covenanted to Abraham to come, to add weight and consequence to sinful decisions, and to reveal to mankind the depth of his own insufficiency to be right with God. But only, notice Paul says, only till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Until that time, the law was given, he says, by angels, that word meaning messengers, in the hand of a mediator. There, there are some who believe th this word angels here to actually mean spiritual messengers, the, the idea of spiritual angels. However, we see throughout the New Testament precedent 
for this word angels also being earthly messengers. The word in the Greek simply does mean messengers. So if we broaden that term, I would believe most likely the angels by which um, the law was ordained would have been probably the prophets who were giving, thus saith the Lord, explanations of the law. If, uh, if we want to say that it was actual spiritual angels, that's fine. We just don't have anything in the, in the Old Testament to relate that to. And we do have a relation to the idea of the messengers of God being the prophets. Either way, um, it, it doesn't really matter that much. But then we, we see the idea of it was in the hands of a mediator. And of course, we know from early in the book of Exodus that the mediator with, uh, in whose hands the law was, was Moses. So everything about the covenant of Sinai was evidently temporal. God did not choose an eternal mediator to mediate Sinai. Moses, a temporal man, a man who would die, mediated Sinai. God did not uh, administer all of the elements of, he did not ordain the law at the hands of himself. He, he ordained it at the hands of his messengers. Everything about it was evidently temporal. And it was temporal because it was intended to pass away. Whereas God ordained the covenant of Christ at the hands of an eternal mediator and by his own blood. And so we continue in verses 21 and 22. Is the law then against the promises of God? Well, we've answered that from Romans 7 already. God forbid. If there had been a law which, which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Paul then reiterates, as we have established, that the law is not against the promises of God, but it also doesn't override the promises of God. The law, uh, it came and went without ever addressing the primary need of man, which was to be reconciled to God. If the law could have given life, it would have given life, but it could not give life because no man can fulfill the law. And that by God's blessed mercy. Why is that God's mercy that no man can fulfill the law? Because it levels the playing field. Because it means that my relationship with God is not contingent upon my family, my, 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 my family background or whether I'm poor or rich. It's not contingent upon whether or not my parents took the initiative to get me into church or not. Wouldn't it be a bummer if our relationship with God was wholly dependent upon our works? And then we have all of these poor kids growing up in homes where their parents don't care, and now they're not, they're disqualified before they even know what's going on because they've lived outside of the expectations of God by righteousness. But see, the playing field is leveled because we're all unrighteous, right? Which means God can have mercy on us all. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Where does this leave us? The remainder of Galatians 3 tells us. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul likens the law to a schoolmaster intended to be our teacher, to reveal to us the re reality of the world in which we live, the reality of the spiritual condition in which we stay, the reality that we are hopelessly separated from God, that our own righteousness, that our own disposition cannot get us right with God. The law exists to show us our failures, to reveal that we cannot be justified by works. And once we know that, then the law points us to the only solution, which is the one who fulfilled it, Jesus Christ. And once we have that faith, the schoolmaster becomes redundant, right? The schoolmaster's job is complete. Once I know how to add and to subtract, I could still sit in a class every day listening to a teacher teach on how to add and subtract, but my time is wasted. It is redundant because I've already learned how to add and to subtract, and so, because I've learned that already, I don't need to be sitting under its tutelage. It's redundant at that point. Once you have come to faith in Christ, the law becomes redundant. It's accomplished its purpose in you. It has done its job. Now, that being said, does that mean that there's not a point where I might need a refresher course? I wander from, I wander from the Lord. I'm walking contrary to sound doctrine. 
church discipline perhaps is imposed upon me, whatever the case may be. Uh, those who are walking con- uh, in sound doctrine, uh, as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 5, treat the one who is walking contrary to sound doctrine as an unbeliever, publican and a sinner. What, what are you doing there? When the church exercises church discipline, when we separate from someone who has been rebuked, who has been told that they're living in sin, and who has refused, and so we treat them as a publican and a sinner, so we, 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 we withhold fellowship, we defellowship from them. The idea is we don't turn them into enemies, right? Because we don't treat the unbeliever that way. We don't go out into the world and start giving nasty eyes to everybody who's not a believer and say, no, you can't, you, you can't I won't talk to you because you're, you're an unbeliever. No, but when we treat them as an unbeliever, what do we do? We go back to the gospel with them. We go back to sin and righteousness through Christ. And so there may be, be a point in the life of a believer who's walking contrary to sound doctrine where he needs to sit under that tutor again for a little bit, not to bring him to Christ, he's already there, but to remind him of where he, sta- of, of where he stands in Christ and what his, his expectations are. So Paul would say, the law is not for a righteous man, but for holy, lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. Let's carry this back into 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read this passage again with all of this context in mind, verses 5 through 11. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So Paul exhorts Timothy to instruct the church of Ephesus and he centers on those who are teaching other doctrines, unsound doctrine, fables, stories, myths, man's ideas, endless genealogies, getting caught up in things that do not matter or profit, and these things are rather than godly edifying which is in faith. See, because the end of the commandment, that does not mean the commandment ends. That means the point, right? The, the, the object of the commandment, the object of the law, the essence of the church's existence is to exercise charity, love, out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. We've defined love already. We defined it for weeks, right? We're not talking about an emotion that wells up in me that can, that can be, be uh, ebb and flow on the basis of how I'm feeling that day or how much I've eaten that day or how much sleep I got last night. But we're talking about that unconditional choice to do what is best for the object of that love regardless of self-interest or circumstances. And we talked about how that plays out over the last two lessons. Don't lose that context there. But when we're there as a church, pure, separated, joyful, gracious toward one another, toward those who are beyond these doors, then we're where we ought to be. There are those who lose their way. There are those who lose their focus. They turn aside unto vain jangling, as Paul says here. And Paul says, be careful of this in the church. Be careful of those who would seek to teach a doctrine that they don't understand, nor what they're lessons would affirm. Let us not be among those that are caught up in such things. The law is good if we use it lawfully. But outside of its design, it become, can become a confusion. We need to be careful. Four brief applications as we close today. We've talked about what the law is good for in relation to broad concepts. We've talked about why we're not under the law as those who are, who are in the righteousness of Christ. Let's talk about where the law truly does shine. First, the law is great for evangelism. The law is great for evangelism. We often talk when we teach about evangelism, the importance of getting people lost before we can get them saved, right? Before we can get them found. Uh, if a man does not know he's drowning, no matter how many life preservers are floating around him, he's not going to grab them, right? And particularly in an area such as this, which is a very religious area, uh, lots of Lutheran, lots of Catholic, whatnot, uh, who, who, are, who many times, second, third, fourth, fifth generation families who are, have no basis to understand what they believe or why they believe it, have no understanding of the gospel that's been sifted out 
of them through the generations. Uh, oftentimes, it's very important. You're going to spend a lot more time getting people lost than actually getting people found in communities such as this one. The law does an absolutely fantastic job at showing man his sinfulness. Now, resting just in the Ten Commandments is sufficient to reveal to any man how short he falls of his own capacity to do right. And we know James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. The moment I offend one law, one point of the law, the whole weight of the law falls upon my shoulders. People don't think this way, do they? This is not the natural way that people think. They think about how they did wrong, but they didn't mean to do wrong. And they think, well, I may have done wrong, but God knows my intentions. I may have done some bad things, but I'm really a good person. And all of these self-righteous justifications fall flat under the weight of the law. When a person knows and understands the blind justice that the law demands, that they are inevitably brought to the reality of their own sinfulness and separation from God because the law demands justice. And once they're lost and know their desperate state, the state in which they reside by virtue of their offenses against a holy God, well, then the solution can be made evident. Salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And that becomes the great solution to the moral problem in their hearts. The separation from the spiritual separation, or the, the, the solution to the spiritual separation, which they will inevitably feel at that moment. It activates the conscience and it stirs that need. To that end, there is tremendous value in using the law as a part of a broader strategy to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. Naturally, not everyone's objection to salvation is that they don't know that they're a sinner, right? There are those who are living in self-righteousness. There are those who object for any number of other reasons, any number of other problems. Uh, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that not many noble, not many mighty, not many uh, wise are called. There are people who don't want to give up what they have, no matter how much they know they're a sinner. They don't want to give up what they have. That, that, that's not where the law shines. But here, in making a person know that they are, they are separated from God, that's where the law shines. Point number two. The law is great for societal conscience. In two landmark Supreme Court decisions, which uh, fell well into a long line of judicial abuses and activism in the United States, it was deemed unconstitutional to engage in school-sponsored prayer and Bible reading. The first being Engel versus Vitale in, on June 25th of 1962, and the second, Abington School District versus Shemp, June 17th, 1963. Since that time, we've witnessed an almost incessant string of attempts to remove the knowledge of God from the public square. The Ten Commandments, of course, are a particular target being removed from parks and monuments and walls, anything that has to do with public life. The godless are now broadening their attempts, going so far as to try to remove crosses from public land. And naturally, of course, we know this to be an egregious misrepresentation of the Establishment Clause and is entirely ahistorical. But none of that matters because what it really is, of course, what we really know they're trying to do, why they are actually trying to remove these memorials and remove these things is because they bring about the knowledge of God. They bring about the knowledge of the reality that there is a God in heaven who is the righteous judge. And that brings conviction into the heart of the unbeliever and it reminds them that they are accountable and they don't want to be accountable, right? This is what Romans chapter 1 says. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They, they, knowing God, have chosen not to regard God because they want to live the way they want to live. The point of a public display of the Ten Commandments or bringing the Bible reading into schools or prayer in schools, those sorts of things. The point of those things historically was to establish moral accountability in the hearts of men and women. The founders, of course, and those who came from the founders understanding that the, the source of government that we have can only be led by a moral people. And that's what these things did and do. They draw men into a deep and abiding realization of their own sinfulness. They lead them thus to flee to the cross for a solution. To that end, 
we find that the establishment of Christian monuments is not a worthless effort. It forms an important link in the chain of conviction in the hearts of the unbeliever. Now, there should never be an expectation in our hearts. Obviously, we live in a country that, um, that is not... It's, it's fully secular, right? It is fully secular. And there should never be an expectation in the heart of the believer that a secular nation is going to uh, abide biblical truth in an in a overt and a public way. We should never expect that godless society, a godless government, is going to sanction such things. We ought to understand, however, appreciate and encourage where we can the activation of societal conscience in our communities through the knowledge of God. Every little bit makes a difference. Some may say, say well, you know, Pastor, the key is to get to know the people, to get them to trust us so we can win them. And that's true. It's called relational evangelism. It's a great, great tool. Hope you use it. I hope that you are evangelizing those that you know, those that are close to you, those who, who you can relate to and they can relate to you, and I hope you're doing that. But don't discount the simple power of the law of God to activate the conscience of a man, of an unbelieving man, and to drive men and women, regardless of how well they may or may not know you, to seek relief from the own feelings of their separation from God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, the law is great for our children. Children are by nature and design very simple thinkers, right? That's a part of growing up. They will rarely understand the deepest implications of what it means that a man is spiritually separated from God. But that doesn't mean they can't know and understand the realities of their need. It's been my experience that children, due to the simplicity with which they view the world, are often able to comprehend and believe the truths of God, uh, not necessarily better, but perhaps easier than many adults before they have years and years and layers and layers of what-ifs on top of them. There is a manner of speaking, uh, a disadvantage to church to children, however. Perhaps this is not the best way to express it as, as saying that, that children who grew up in a church such as this are disadvantaged. They're not, but, but if you can just follow the line of reasoning with me for a moment, there is a disadvantage to, to, church, to being a church child in this fact that when a child grows up in a deeply moral atmosphere, it's very easy for him to skirt under the radar because he knows how to play the game. He knows how to live the life. He knows how to say the things, do the things, look the way, sound the way he needs to look, sound things he needs to do. I grew up in a Christian home. Thus, I didn't experience a lot of the things that other young people have experienced. I grew up in a home that would not abide foul language and blaspheming God's name. We were taught to tell the truth. We were taught to be kind and polite we didn't have drugs and alcohol in our house, these sorts of things. And, and so, especially compared to the world around me, having gone also to a public school growing up, um, I was a really good kid, right? It's very easy for a child to hear about things, to see things, to compare myself to all those around me and to say, I'm doing just fine. There's a natural propensity to compare myself to others and thus a child can become self-righteous. But you know, that's the power of the law. I'm not an individual actor in any attempt to show someone their need for Christ. I am a partner with the Holy Spirit in my attempts to show people the need for Christ. To this end, the law becomes a huge help. See, because we can talk about these things. We can talk about how you're not supposed to lie and cheat and steal, and, and a child can say, okay, well, I, I can do those things, but then we get down to the essence of other elements of the law. Boiling all the way down to not having idols in your heart. Boiling all the way down to not hating a brother in your heart, boiling all the way down to motivation. And when we get there, 
the law becomes a huge help because no matter how many times a child is told he's a good kid, no matter how well he looks in comparison to the other kids around him, when he comes face to face with the standards of God's righteousness and holiness, he, like every other person on this earth, will find himself to be entirely insufficient. And so this condition is never one in which we want for our children. We don't want them to, to, to feel this guilt and this shame. It is, of course, a natural and important means unto an end that they would find grace through faith. So it's important that we, as we talk to our children, reflect to them the fullest extent of the law's condemnation, that, that, that there is an expectation, there is a holy God, and that we are on the wrong side of that God by nature. Don't hide, let me put it this way, don't hide from children their nature. Don't excuse away their white lies. Don't excuse, oh, they're just being kids. Don't, don't hide from them their nature. Because that, that the reality of their nature, that they are, by nature, children of wrath, that they are, by nature, those who, have, who, are, who are not in Christ, they are not righteous, they need to know that. They need to see that. Because that is what is going to cause them to need to be compelled to flee to the cross. And of course, you keep the gospel in their ears, right? You keep the solution before their eyes. You are not a good kid because you do moral things, right? One of the things that I, I learned early on that I was thankful for, it's just a nuance. I'm not saying that anyone's doing it wrong if they don't, but I, it was my mother-in-law who said, you know, one of the things that they did growing up is instead of saying to, to a person, um, you're, you, you are good, you're a good kid, we tell them they did a good job. And that little nuance of difference of you did something good versus you are good was one of the ways that they sought to inculcate into their children the fact that, no, you're not good, though you did something that I'm pleased with, trying to draw to them the reality that they are unrighteous, that they are sinful, and that they need the blood of Jesus Christ just as all of us do. So the law is great for our children. Fourth and finally, once grace enters the picture, the focus must shift from legal conformity to spiritual alignment. In any of these cases, whether it's evangelizing the unbeliever, whether we're talking broadly about societal conscience, whether we're talking about our children, in all of these cases, just as important as bringing a man to the reality of a separation from God through the law and, and, and then bringing them to Christ, just as important as leading a man or a woman to grace is then, once they have found grace, leading them in grace, okay? We lead them to grace so that then we may lead them in grace. Teaching them to live in the liberty of which we have spoken over the past several weeks. Teaching them that, that the, the essence of the law is to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Helping them transition their minds from the shame of their guilt and insufficiency to the joy of Christian liberty and grace and that's an essential step along the path of their spiritual alignment unto spiritual success, unto spiritual balance. Paul's warning in 1 Timothy was about those who would come into the church and confuse these doctrines, binding the church to what they once were rather than exhorting them into what they are now in Christ. And for us today, we can find ourselves perhaps in that same place. It's important that we use the law lawfully. It's important that we stand fast in our liberty, and it's important that we do so for the glory of God. Let us seek the Lord's help to maintain that balance in our church, in our families, as individuals, in order that we might use the law lawfully, stand fast in our liberty, and thus become for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for others, that which we need to be, that we might reach the lost for Christ.